We're in a series on Philemon or Philemon or Philemon, depending on how you pronounce it. I've been to seminary and have a graduate degree, and I say Philemon. I also found out that that's actually wrong. (laughs) Uh, It's probably Philemon. And I've said Philemon my whole life. And so there is no way I'm going to be able to change that. And so I'm going to get to heaven and he's going to come up to me and he's going to say, Bob, what the heck? And uh, you're you're right. I'm sorry. All right. So we are in the second set. uh, Two weeks ago, we talked about this. We we, we talked about what God was doing and how he was doing it and how Paul was writing about this. We talked about how important Paul used these words, these, these words of community, these words of family, these words of relationship when he described, you know, he talks about his brother, he talks about his sister, he talks about a fellow worker, he talks about a fellow soldier, he talks in all different ways. He tries to bring up these ideas to get, to, to emphasize uh, to Philemon that, that, that he's a part of a family and now this young man, or we don't know how young he is, Onesimus is now a part of that family too, all right? And I was thinking about that because sometimes that can be hard for us to see. Sometimes it can be hard for us to understand what God's doing. We even sang about that some this morning very appropriately. And I I can remember when I was a kid and uh, one day I was in school and one day the teacher said to me, hey, she said, Bobby, you're, you're squinting. Are you having trouble seeing the blackboard? And I was like, I don't know. See, you know, if those of you that have glasses, if you remember... The way things are when you don't have glasses is the way you think they are for everyone. So you just figure everybody, everybody sees the weird things. So you're, you know, and, and so I said, I think I'm fine. And so anyway, she, she sent a note home to my parents. Actually, she sent two notes home because she sent one home with me. And I, I didn't really understand this whole concept. So I'm thinking this means going to a doctor. Most of the times when I would go to a doctor, I'd get stuck with a needle. So that note disappeared, Right. So then she realized what was going on, and so she got another note to my parents out of my hands. And my parents said, we well, need to go see the eye doctor. And, you know, so I went and saw the eye doctor, and they said, oh, you, you need glasses. So they gave me glasses, and when I first put those glasses on, it was like a whole new world. It was just like unbelievable. It, you know, and, and, and if you have glasses and you've forgotten, right, take them off. It's, un, it's, it's unbelievable how I could see. I once was blind, but now I see. That's how I felt. I felt like this is the greatest thing. And this is what grace does in the lives of believers. We begin to see better. We begin to see more clearly. We begin to see reality as opposed to what oftentimes the world tells us or or people tell us that is not quite reality. It just seems like it is. And grace does this in a lot. And God does this. He does it through his word. And he does it through his family. That's how he helps us see better. And Paul talks about this. He talks about this fellowship that comes by grace in the family of God. In the first, what we talked about two weeks ago is that whole idea of there's this connectedness. We're we're a part of a family. And Paul's going to continue that thought here. Because what he's going to talk about is he's going to talk about now how grace changes our behavior. You know, behavior is a tough thing for us because... We forget that this is a process. We expect things to happen quickly. You, I don't know about you, but there's some times where I struggle with something, and I'm like, ah, again? This is still a problem for me? 
what the heck is wrong with me? I'm like, God, I'm so sorry. You know, I, I, and I think some of that stems back. I can remember one time doing something and telling my dad and asking him, saying, I'm sorry, Dad, and him saying, this is the sixth time you've done this. And I just remember, and I've shared this with you guys, that sudden realization, my dad keeps count. He's keeping count. It was very, it was very disheartening, you know? And, and, and so it's this, we have to understand, we're in this process our Heavenly Father does not keep count. You know, because process is a tough thing for us. If you've ever been a part of a family, I have five kids. <clears throat> my parents live 15 hours away. When we take the kids to go see my parents, we leave, we had a van, and we'd leave at like 4 o'clock in the afternoon. And then after a while, we'd play games and do that. And then after a while, they'd fall asleep. You know, and we, this is illegal, but we'd lay them all down on the floor and, uh, and put sleeping bag on top of all, you know, at four at the time. And I just drive through the night. And, and I, I like that because you can go, you know, the traffic's better at night. You can go a little faster. And, um, and, and the kids don't bug me. Well, one night, a couple of them were struggling with sleeping. And so they asked the, the question, I'd call it, the question. And it gets asked a lot. And it's often asked with a whiny, obnoxious intensity that is designed to drive parents nuts. Are we there yet? Are we there yet? 15 flipping hour drive. We're three hours in and you're asking me, are we there yet? That's called destination impatience. Because it's a process and you can't make it go any faster. Foolish parents or maybe rookie parents or new parents, they'll sometimes try to take care of this by giving these false assurance. Yeah, almost, not too much longer, just a little longer, hang in there. That's a mistake, let me tell you. That one night when two of my kids were, I just said, I'm sick of this. No, we're not almost there. We're nowhere near almost there. This is going to go on and on and on. So stop your whining, or we'll never get there. We're going to drive each other crazy in this van, in the trip that never ends. That is why all of my children are still in therapy, but I think it boils down to that night at about 1 a.m. when dad went berserk on them, right? So it's this process. We're in this process, and it goes on and on and on sometimes. It not, doesn't go as fast as we want. But we're in this process, and this process is changing us. We sang it. It's changing us from the inside out. Outward change is easy. It's easy. You know, you can dress yourself up. You can do this. You can do that. That's easy. You can be nice to people for a while. Inward change. Because, you know, you can be nice to people. Oh, wow, you look so good. Not really. And that dress, you know, and oh, you look so good in that color. You know, you can be nice, but inside, you know what's going on inside, right? So grace changes us, and we need it. This is the only way it can happen. First thing we see in this passage, grace changes how we exercise and view authority. All right? He says this. Look at, look at verses 8 and 9 on your sheet. If you have your Bible, Philemon, it's only got one chapter. It's not hard. Therefore, although in Christ I could be bold and order you to do what you ought to do, yet I prefer to appeal to you on the basis of love. So just a reminder, Philemon is in the, the town of Colossae, right? And he is a, a, a Christian there that's involved in the church. Evidently, he has a, he's, he's pretty rich. He has a big house. The church meets in his house. 
right? Paul led Philemon to the Lord. Philemon had a slave named Onesimus who ran away and evidently seems to imply he stole from him. Now, that opens up a whole can of worms as we talk about slavery, and we talked about that two weeks ago, so I'd encourage you to listen to that, or if you have more questions, you can just see me, talk to me. We'll, we can set up a meeting and, and go into how, how, what slavery was like and how the Bible deals with slavery, but it wasn't, it wasn't race-based slavery, like the, the, the stain on our national identity from, from the way we uh, inflicted that, uh, it wasn't race-based, and also um, being set free was normal in, that, in, the, in those days. People had an end date, or oftentimes the end date involved some amount of money, and they could work on their own. They could own property. They, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't the same. It was horrible, but it wasn't the same. Oftentimes people sold, sold themselves into slavery. In other words, they'd say, look, I'll, work, I'll be your slave for five years if when I leave you give me 20 grand. Stuff like that. That's how it was, almost like indentured servanthood, that, that type of thing. And so, so Onesimus has found his way by you know, the providence of God, found his way to Paul in prison. Somehow someone introduced, Paul leads Onesimus to the Lord. Onesimus begins to... His life is changed. He begins to serve Paul, but somewhere along the way, he says, Paul, I got to tell you, because I know you're great friends with Philemon, and I was his slave, and I ran away. And Paul is sending Onesimus back, not because he endorses slavery, but because he wants to heal a relationship. All right? So Paul says, therefore, Although in Christ I could be bold and order you what you ought to do, yet I prefer to appeal to you on the basis of love. Now, grace changes, let's remind, remind, grace changes how we exercise and view authority. Who has the authority here? Paul has the authority here, right? Paul brought the gospel to Philemon. Paul led Philemon to the Lord. He's Philemon's mentor. He's an apostle. He has all the authority. And what is he doing? In verse 9, I prefer to appeal. He says, I'm appealing to you. Now, that word appeal is a word of submission. It's a word that has no authority in it. The word appeal is the word they would use of, you have the authority, I'm begging you for help. Paul uses that word. You think about that. Paul has all the authority, and he says, not here, not in this situation. This is not the right time to order someone. And so he's saying, finally, I am begging you, please do the right thing here. Please do the right thing. And what's very key here is Paul is giving Philemon the opportunity to say no. He's saying, I am yielding, Paul said, I'm yielding my authority and I'm going to let you say no. Yes or no, it's totally up to you. So Paul here, the grace of God has affected him so much that he says this is a time where authority doesn't matter. This is a time where love, love has to. And so he says, yet I prefer to appeal to you on the basis of love. So that's what he's setting. Instead of authority, instead of my authority, he says, I'm coming to you with love. I'm appealing for love's sake. And this is the tone throughout the book. A little later, verse 14, he says this, but I did not want to do anything without your consent. So that any favor you do would not seem forced, 
but would be voluntary. Paul is being tactful. Paul is being truthful. He's, he's speaking the truth in love. This is a hard thing for us. Speaking the truth in love. Because you know what? This is important. If you act in love, but you don't bring the truth in, all you're going to do is enable someone to continue in what they're doing. If you just act loving, but there's no truth, you're an enabler. If you just speak the truth, but there's no love, you're an abuser. Because that just abuses people. And we have all seen that, right? We have all seen that. Somebody says something that can be incredibly hurtful. And everybody's like, what are you doing? I'm just telling the truth. Yeah, you may be telling the truth, but it's without love. This is abusive. So that's very key for us. Remember that. Love without truth, is, it just enables. Truth without love is abusive. So if you have authority in someone's life, what was Paul teaching us here? He's teaching us that grace changes how we exercise authority. If you have authority in someone's life, exercise it very carefully. Be careful how you use it because we're all ultimately under authority. We're ultimately all under the authority of God and his word. And and oftentimes we don't like that. There may be things about the word of God we don't like, but that's the authority here. The word of God confronts me. It challenges me. And even in this passage, it's making us stop and consider the authority that I have. How do I exercise that authority? When I speak, do I speak the truth in love or do I separate those two? And ultimately, it becomes a hurtful situation, whether it's enabling or abusing. It's hurtful. You're you're doing no favors for the person. So grace changes how we exercise and view authority. Secondly, grace compels us to desire and to pursue reconciliation. He says, it is none other than Paul, an old man and now a prisoner of Christ Jesus, that I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, who became my son while I was in chains. So, so Onesimus, he ran away. He probably stole. Through, oftentimes, slaves would run to the... You can get lost in the big cities. you know. So somebody talks to him, gets to know him, says, hey, you can talk to, let's talk to the apostle. Paul leads him to the Lord. This whole, whole thing goes on. And Paul says here... In verse 10, I appeal to you for my son Onesimus. That word appeal is parakaleo. It's this word of someone who comes alongside to comfort you or to beseech you, to ask you for something. It's a very personal word. And again, it's a submissive word when it's used for beseeching. He says, I know you can say no. And I'm humbly begging you not to say no. This is the second time he's saying that. I know you can say no. I'm humbly begging you not to say no. Paul's asking for reconciliation. And it could be costly if Philemon says no. He's willing to accept that. Paul Paul could lose a close friend. He could lose his son, Onesimus, in the Lord. And so here we go. You know, uh, Paul is, is dealing with this incredibly delicate issue, but the one thing I want you to see here is that Paul is looking at something bigger than, than we could talk about slavery, we talk about this, stealing, we talk about that. He's saying, hey, this guy's your brother, and you need to, there is something between you that needs to be resolved. There needs to be reconciliation. So it's a spiritual issue for Paul. That's what's going on here. Because ultimately, you know, Paul is steeped in the Old Testament. He, he, he's a Pharisee. He was a Pharisee. He had, and Pharisees had the whole Old Testament memorized. Look at Deuteronomy 23, 15, 16. If a slave has taken refuge with you, 
Do not hand him over to his master. Let them live among you wherever they like, in whatever town they choose. Do not oppress them. Paul didn't have to send Onesimus back to Philemon. He could have just stayed there. He could have just stayed there. He could have had him stay. And he says, he was ministering to me. I love him dearly. He's like my own son. He didn't have to send him back. But Paul is saying, hey, there's a spiritual issue here that goes beyond what I want or what I need. There needs to be reconciliation here. And so he wants to do that. Not master-slave reconciliation, brother-to-brother, sister-to-sister. Family reconciliation is what needs to to happen here. And we need to be people of reconciliation. We need to be people who this is an important part of our lives. Um, I'm not going to show, I just, in, in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, one of the things Paul talks about, he talks about this, that we have this ministry of reconciliation. And Paul says, we are ambassadors of Christ. We are ambassadors of Christ. And he says, as though God was speaking through us. He says, we implore you on Christ's behalf, speaking the very word of God, we implore you to be reconciled. He says, for everyone listening, be reconciled. This is what God is telling you. And Paul is saying this to us. We need to be people who are reconcilers, people who bring healing. And that's what speaking the truth in love does. It brings healing. So grace changes how we exercise and view authority. Grace compels us to desire and pursue reconciliation. Grace compels us to be forgiving people. He says, formerly he was useless to you, but now he has become useful both to you and to me. Now, the word Onesimus means useful. Paul's doing a little play on word here, he, and, and, and in the Greek it goes even to a deeper level because he uses, he uses a word that, that oftentimes would be associated with Christians. And so he, he's making this little play on word. It doesn't seem very funny to us, but to, to, uh, but to the Romans, it was, uh, to the Colossians, it was hilarious. Trust me, okay? So he, he says, formerly he was useless to you, but now he's become useful both to you and to me. He's doubled his usefulness. I am sending him, who is my very heart. Now there's words of love. He says, I'm sending Onesimus, who is my heart, back to you. And you think about it, I'm sending him back to you. For many slaves who had run away, that could be a death sentence. Because officially the penalty for running away was death. They didn't always enforce it, but it could be. And Paul says, I'm sending him, and and he stops in the middle of that, because Paul knows this is significant, and he says, this is my heart you're dealing with here. Think about that before you react. I'm sending him who is my heart back to you. I would have liked to keep him with me. Like Paul saying, you know, Deuteronomy kind of gives me an out here, and I would have liked to have done that so that he could take your place in helping me while I am in chains for the gospel. So Paul says, grace compels us to be forgiving people. Paul writes this because we struggle with this. We struggle with this whole concept of forgiveness. Our culture has a ridiculous concept of forgiveness. Our culture has a concept of forgiveness that says, oh, forgive and forget, right? Can I tell you what a load of bull that is, right? You think about someone who has hurt you badly. Someone that even now, if you think about it, you're like, oh, you feel that pain. Someone who has done something terrible to you. 
you can't forget it. I just reminded you of it. You're like, yeah, thanks, Bob. Yeah, that was a bad moment in my life. Thank you. What an encourager, right? You can't forget it. Because here's, here's what happened. This is, we have to think this through. We've talked about this, but I, I think it's so important. When someone harms you, when something is done to you, a debt is incurred. Now they owe you. Now they owe you. If someone comes into your house and they break something in your house and they go, oh my goodness, you know, you go, uh, that was a very expensive vase. And they're like, oh, well, I'll pay for it. If you say, no, that's all right. I forgive you. Don't worry about it. And they're like, thanks, because I didn't have the money, right? So, so then they leave. So then they leave. And you're sweeping up the broken pieces of the vase. Has the vase been paid for? No. It has not been paid for. They have been forgiven, but if you're getting a new vase, who's buying it? You are. See, that's the key to forgiveness. Forgiveness is saying, I forgive you, I'll pay for it. Because that's how Jesus forgave us, right? And so understand this, that when you have forgiven something, someone of something very difficult, you have shouldered the debt and you are paying for it. That's why you don't forget it quickly. Because it doesn't get paid for like that. When, it, it, when you've really been hurt, it takes time. It's a process to forgive and to allow that to have less of a grip on your life. So that, and if you, it, I mean everyone here, I hope, uh, this is how I am, I hope you're this way. You, 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 you forgive someone, and then like 10 minutes later you remember it, and you're like, Ugh. You're like, oh, Lord, forgive. I, I, I got to forgive them. I, and, and you go through the process again. And then a little while later, you remember it and you're like, I'd like to, right? And, and why? Because it's not paid for yet. It takes time to pay for a large debt. And it will not. That's why forgive and forget, come on. That's for people who steal pencils, Right? I can forgive and forget that. If you come to see me in my office and you walk out with a first church ministry's pen like many of you do, <laughs> obviously I haven't quite forgotten it, have I? Yeah, yeah, I know how this works. I was at Einstein's the other day. I used my credit card and the person behind the counter handed me a first church ministry's pen to sign with. <laughs> I was like, hey, hey, thief, right? No, 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 we're happy for you to take the pen. It's free advertising, and they, they work. They last a long time. So they're good. They're actually pretty good pins. Well, how am I getting on this? Stop, stop, stop. Okay, so forgiveness. You incur a debt. The debt is not easily paid for. It takes time, and you're shouldering that debt. That's why it's so hard. Don't beat yourself up over the fact that forgiving a huge thing is hard because it's hard because it is hard. And so that's what forgiveness is. And we need this because we're not perfect yet. This is the heart of the Christian message. It's not people trying to be perfect so that maybe God will love them. The Christian message is we have a perfect God who provided salvation for imperfect people. And through the death of, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, it's available to each one of us, anyone who will accept it. Paul was transformed by that grace. Philemon was transformed by that grace. Onesimus was transformed by that very same grace. And Paul is emphasizing that. Because of the grace of God, we cannot be people who hold grudges and hold on to debts. The fourth one is this. Um, 
Grace works in surprising and mysterious ways. Right? Grace changes how we exercise and view authority. Grace compels us to desire and pursue reconciliation. Grace compels us to be forgiving people. Grace works in surprising and in mysterious ways. He says, perhaps the reason he was separated from you for a little while back was that you might have him back forever. No longer as a slave, but better than a slave, as a dear brother. He's a very dear to me, but even dearer to you, both as a fellow man and as a brother in the Lord. Now, if you study this passage, Paul has just cut out the foundation for slavery. Because he says at the very end, not just as a brother in the Lord, but also simply as a fellow human being. And so what is Paul doing? He's laying the moral authority that wipes out this idea of owning people. And so he's saying here, the hand of God has been at work in this whole thing. This early difficulty is simply a process to getting to a greater good. And so this difficult thing yielded the greater good. God, in his story, is doing things far greater than we can imagine. He's creating something beautiful, not just in you individually, but as the story of his salvation, the story of his kingdom throughout the whole world. You know, it's much like the story of Joseph, and if you're familiar with that story, and I hope you are because it's a long story, we're not going to go over all of it, but ultimately he was sold into slavery by his brothers, thrown into prison, this and this and this and this, and finally elevated to second in, in charge of Egypt, the prime minister of Egypt. His family starts experiencing a famine. The very brothers who sold him into slavery show up asking for food. This is a long time later. They don't recognize him. You know, and this whole process works out, and he does that. And at the very end, they're afraid. Once our dad dies, he is going to kill us. Because once our dad's gone, there's no holding him back. And Joseph hears that, and he says, in Genesis 50, 20, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. All right? In your life, I don't know what you're going through presently, but God is at work. When Joseph was thrown in prison, you know, he was there for a while, and he had this, he helped some people out, and one of them said, man, as soon as I get out, I'm telling, the, I'm telling Pharaoh, and he's going to let you out. And, and, and that guy gets out, and he forgets, and he stays in prison more years. Very interesting. In, in Genesis, it says, God was with Joseph in prison. How do you think Joseph felt while he was in prison? You know, like, oh, this is horrible, you know, this is, this is so depressing. And then there's a glimmer of hope. This guy's going to tell Pharaoh that I'm, I'm in here. Yay, go, tell him, tell him. And then after another year goes by, and then another year goes by, and then another year goes by. And he, it's like, where's God? Where's God? And it says God was with him in prison the whole time. God is with you in your struggles and in your difficulties the whole time. It may not look like it, but he's there. I mean, you think of Philemon after he was robbed. Did it seem like God was at work? You think of your story. Maybe some pivotal moments. Maybe there were some deep valleys. Did it seem like God was at work? No, it didn't. I'm answering for you. It didn't. There were times where you, you can wonder, where is God? 
And he says, I want you to be reconciled as brothers, as fellow human beings. Why? Because at the same time that the book of Philemon is being sent to Colossae, the book of Colossians is being sent to Colossae by the same people. In fact, Philemon was one of the guys carrying the letters. Can you imagine that? Philemon may have been carrying the writing to, uh, I mean, Onesimus may, Onesimus may have been carrying the letter to Philemon himself, thinking, darn, if he says no, I'm a dead man. That'd be an amazing thing. And he says, God is with him. In Colossians 3.11, here, there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Christ is in all. This is the leveling of the field. Because everybody's welcome here. Nobody's perfect. But anything is possible when God is involved. Anything is possible. And so when you look around you, these are your brothers and sisters in Christ. All around you, these are your brothers and sisters in Christ. You may look at, you may look at some of them and go, I'm not so sure. But I just want to let you know there's some looking at you that are going, I'm not so sure. All right, so it works both ways. Be careful. You may look at some and go, man, it would take a miracle. That's what God does. He does miracles. He does miracles in people's lives. He changes them from the inside out, the hard change. And that's what he does because, why? Because we need each other. Because grace transforms us. Grace works it changes how we exercise and view authority. It changes. It compels us to desire and to pursue reconciliation. It compels us to be people who forgive, who do the hard work of forgiving. The, the whole forgive and forget thing is so glib. It ignores the reality of the fact that forgiving is hard, hard work and can take years. Grace works in surprising and mysterious ways. God is with you even when it doesn't seem like he is. He deals with the things that we deal with. I got off, uh, I've stayed really good today. I got off on a rabbit trail the other day, and I was thinking about this. I was, I was reading, some, uh, reading some stuff that had been written about depression. And, uh, you know, the, 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 they talk about, and this is very simplified. Please don't get upset with me if I oversimplify. But they say there's basically two main ways this happens. One is bipolar disorder, where there's a manic phase and a depressive phase. and that So real highs and real lows, and that... That uh, tends to be biological most of the time. Then there's reactive depression. That is people who experience just the low part, um, um, just the depressed part. And it tends to be, it tends to be something that, that is geared a lot towards circumstances, environment, upbringing, partially genetic. But, but manic depressed, bipolar tends to tends to be equal in all groups of people. However you group people, it tends to have an equal rate because it's basically biological. But reactive depression, just that low, can vary tremendously in different groups. And it, at, at the University of Pennsylvania, they're doing a, uh, they were doing a study a while back, and they published a lot of it, but it's pretty interesting because they found a group that was significantly, I mean significantly, less depressive than all other groups than all other groups. And this intrigued them, so they started studying it. And, and it was interesting because I started thinking, what group would that be? Well, probably left-handed people because I'm left-handed. I think we're actually special. Um, you know, maybe bald people. 
maybe people with glasses or people who are a little overweight. That means I'm, on the, I'm in the good every way around you go, right? No, it was the Amish. It was the Amish. And they found that bipolar, manic depressive, was equal with the Amish just like every other group. But reactive depression was way lower. And they were trying to figure out, why is that? And they narrowed it down to a couple of things. Incredible sense of community. Incredible sense of community. Part of that comes through church. They have an incredible sense of community in church. This is why we want to talk about small groups. This is why we want to talk about getting involved in things. And not just Sunday morning, but being involved at a, at a higher level. The only thing that occurred to me was, how do you test Amish people for the manic phase, right? They smile too much. I mean, how do you do that? And actually, these UPenn researchers, they, they had ways to do it. They looked at things like, and it was, it was things like, they give much bigger than normal gifts at Christmas. Definite tip off. I was like, really? Wow. They drive their buggy too fast. That was another one, and I'm serious. That's what it was. So that if you get somebody who says, oh, man, Obadiah's in trouble. He went flying by me in his buggy, and he had gifts in the back seat. The horses are all like, get out the lithium. This is going to be a tough one, you know? That's, uh, that's, that's, that, that's the things they looked for. But the interesting thing that got me was they have a sense of community, a powerful sense of belonging and acceptance and community. Isn't that interesting that Jesus was talking about that 2,000 years ago and how important that is in the life of a believer in Jesus Christ? We need each other. I want to tell you, if you start thinking, maybe I would like to get involved. It's not too late to get involved in a small group. I mean, we, we, we have a limited number because we have limited people that are willing to host and willing to lead, but we have some groups that are available on Sunday night. There's some men's groups Tuesday and Thursday, and, and th- Tuesday night's going to be for women and if you think, well, this night's good for me, that's the only night that's good for me, if you would host it, maybe we could work with you. And that would be great. Because we need community. Grace compels us to be that type of a person. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth that is there for us. For each one of us, Lord, you may be impressing us with different things. Help us. Help us to follow through. Help us not to forget. Help us not to put it off, but to be willing to do the hard work of reconciliation and forgiveness, to be graceful people who, when others see us, they love what they see. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to take an offering now, and uh, as they come forward, I, wa- I want to reiterate it. This is emphasize this. If you are a guest here, if this is your first time or you're new here, please don't feel pressured to give. This is what our regular attenders and our members do as a part of their work.